Good morning, church family. It's good to see half of your faces. <laughs> I say that because half of your faces are covered. And those of you online, I can't see your face. You have to look at mine, unfortunately. It's a bad exchange, but thanks for tuning in this morning. I'm really glad to be with you guys. You are an incredible church. I love you. Um, you're so gracious. Like Linda said, this has been a tough two years for everybody. And then leaders having to make decisions about different things. It's awkward and hard and annoying, but you guys are gracious and loving. So thank you for being an incredible congregation. This morning, we're starting a study in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. So get a Bible open, uh, grab the Pew Bible, open that up on your lap. If you don't have a Bible, you can take that home with you. If, you're, if you are technologically advanced, you can turn it on on your phone. But I encourage you to old school flip through the pages. Um, and so open up to 1 Corinthians. We'll be there in just a moment. Um, as we get started, I want to share with you this story of this powerful and influential woman named Pauline Esther Friedman, who lived from 1918 until 2013. She was also known as Abigail Van Buren. She's famous for having written the Dear Abby column from 1956 until the early 2000s. Out of curiosity, how many of you read the Dear Abby column at least at some point in your life? Put your hand up nice and high. All right, about half of you. Um, you can judge that based off of age. Um, but anyway, Abigail Van Buren wrote the Dear Abby column from 1956 until the early 2000s. In its heyday, Dear Abby was the most widely published news column in the world, being published in 1,400 newspapers with over 110 million readers worldwide. Abigail Van Buren is the original social media gangster, being followed by the masses before Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Facebook could make you famous. On March 29th, 1964, she wrote a bit in Dear Abby that has been famously quoted by pastors and Christians ever since, even though they don't, most people don't know it originates with her. Let me read you the expert. Somebody writes into the paper asking her advice. They say, Dear Abby, will you please give a couple of poor saps some information? I believe there must be hundreds of people in our shoes. We have been living together since 1946. We are not married. We do not belong to a church because we do not feel that we are worthy of going to church. Yes, dear Abby, we have children. We want to get married and do life right, and after all these years, we don't know where to turn except to you. Sincerely, Sinner. Abby writes, Dear Sinner, the very fact that you are troubled by the way that you are living proves that you are worthy of going to church. A church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. If you've been around church, you've heard that phrase, the church is not a museum for saints, it is a hospital for sinners. It's, it's a nice sentiment. I wonder if it's a common reality, a common experience. Actually, it's believed that Dear Abby was drawing that quote off of St. Augustine, who in the 4th century wrote a little more scandalously, cover your children's ears here to listen to this quote from St. Augustine. He wrote in the 4th century, the church is a whore, but that whore is my mother. If you're offended by that language, read the Bible. It's in there over and over and over again. Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you're going to find that exact word in your Bible. And he says, the church is a whore. Unfaithful, cheating, scoundrel, but that whore is my mother. And who doesn't have this innate love for their mother, right? Yes, the church is a mess. We are a mess, we're filled with judgment. We're filled with projecting our own stuff onto other people or, 
or, or misinterpreting their actions. Even just this morning, I, I stopped at Cub to pick up my communion elements here. And one of the reasons I love going to the grocery store on a Sunday morning before I come to church and picking up communion elements so that it reminds me to pray for and think about the people who aren't here and who will probably never come into these doors. They're going about their lives. There's people working minimum wage jobs trying to pay their bills. There's people who are worried about the playoff football game, and so they're getting all of their food. They have different lives. And as I walked into Cub, just like walking into church, right, there's people who have masks on and people who don't have masks on. And, and, and I wrestle in my own soul my judgments of people, as you do as well, based off of what you think is right or what you've been told is good. And so that's just one example of the messy church. But the reality is that the church is a mess in a lot more ways than just whether we mask or don't mask or whether we agree about masks or disagree about masks. The church is a whore, but that whore is our mother. The church is a place where saints and sinners collide. Like that quote from Dear Abby, the church is not a museum for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. I love that sentiment, but the reality is that sinners and saints collide here because if we're in Christ, our identity is that of saints. Everyone who is in Jesus Christ through the eyes of God is viewed as a saint. Isn't that amazing? We're going to see that in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. You, in Jesus, are a saint. But you know the judgment in your own soul. You know that in your flesh you struggle with sin, right? And so the church, the family of God, the body of Christ, is the place where sinners and saints collide. And it's not you versus me or you versus you or you versus you. It's in your own soul, The new standing, the new status of being a saint of God, colliding with your own sin nature. You have this turmoil, this battle, this mess in your own soul, right? Amen? You feel that? And then you have roommates, or you have a spouse, or you have children, or you have parents, or you have friends, or you have coworkers, or you have neighbors, or you have people in a community group, or you have people sitting next to you in your own pew. And their saintness and their sinnerness is colliding next to you, and you are colliding with yourself, and then you collide with each other. Welcome to the mess that is the church. I'm so excited to study 1 Corinthians with you this, I'm going to go with spring. I've been saying winter spring. I'm just going to be hopeful. This spring, I'm so excited to study this book with you because it offers us ancient words of wisdom from a pastor who loved the church, but this church was a mess. Everything that you and I are struggling with and more, it's all on the pages. Maybe I shouldn't say and more, it's just out in the light. We're going to become aware of the sins of the church in Corinth and how Paul addresses it and how Paul encourages this messy church with the gospel. See, the church is a mess, but it's the mess that God loves. So this spring, we're going to dive deep into this book and see what God has for us. I'm going to ask that you stand as I read the opening passage here, kind of the introductory introductory passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It's on page 952 in the Pew Bible. God, may you speak to us through your word. May your spirit reveal to us what we need this morning, to live in life and godliness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, 
to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace God has given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You may have a seat. This morning, as we consider this text, I want to, in, in the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, which we're going to be in for months to come, I want to consider the author, the audience, and then the main address, what, what the author is saying here. The author, we're told right away, it's Paul, the Apostle Paul. He, he was known as Saul, the, the Jewish zealot who is persecuting Christians. You read about this in the book of Acts, chapter 8, chapter 9. Paul, actually at the end of chapter 7, Paul if you remember in Acts 6 and 7, this man named Stephen is appointed to care for widows in the church who are being neglected in the daily distribution of bread. And so Stephen steps up and he's making sure that widows in the church, in the community in first century Jerusalem are being cared for. And he's so hated by the religious leaders of the day because he believes in Jesus and he's breaking down some of their religious culture and customs that he's executed in the street. And Paul... Saul is a Jewish zealot who is there giving approval of the execution of Stephen. Then as the story goes in Acts chapter 8 and 9, we see that Saul is met by Jesus on the road to Damascus and and he becomes a Christian from a persecutor of Christians to a Christian himself and then he joins the team, right? Can you imagine in your pew sitting next to somebody who previously was trying to kill you for your faith? This is Paul, our author, and and we're told here that he is the author of this letter, along with Sosthenes, who was a member of of the church in the first century in Corinth. These two guys together, Paul is the primary author, he's the primary pastor, instructor of this church, and Sosthenes was one of the spiritual leaders with him who cared for the church, and we can learn about this in Acts chapter 18, so flip over there with me. I want to take a little bit of time this morning and show you kind of the origin of this church in Corinth. We're going to talk a little bit about the city, a little bit about the origin. I want you to see where this church began. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, and Acts 17 is a beautiful picture of Paul in the city of Athens proclaiming the gospel to pagans. After this, he left Athens and he went to Corinth. Corinth is in the, in the it's now modern day Greece. It was a prominent city. It was a port city, a ton of culture, a ton of commerce. It was a wealthy city. It was a city that had a ton of worship to pagan gods, both Greek gods and Roman gods. There was temp, the temple to Aphrodite, where we get our term aphrodisiac was there. There was temple prostitution. It was just a, a city filled with corruption, political and religious corruption, filled with twisted sexual morals and a lack of sexual consideration and, and honoring people sexually. It was a place with like corrupt money, corrupt leaders. There was art. There was theater. There was, it, it hosted this uh, annual 
athletic events, so there were people who were super concerned with their body and keeping their body in shape and performing. It was like a modern-day city. Everything you would, your flesh would desire was available to you in Corinth. Everything that you thought you should pursue, spiritually speaking, all of the options were there in Corinth. And so Paul comes to Corinth, verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Notice this, sometimes the movement of people by unjust leaders and politicians is actually God's plan. One of the things that we'll notice in the scriptures, and if you read the scriptures honestly, is that the heroes of our faith and the people who went before us, they didn't, they didn't cling to their rights. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't cling to their land, to their territory, to their city as theirs. They moved where the Spirit sent them. They were in Rome. Aquila and Priscilla were believers in Rome, Jewish believers in Rome who were kicked out of Rome because Claudius didn't want Jewish believers. There was turmoil in the city. There were Jews who were becoming Christians and there was battles between the Jews and the, the Christians and so Claudius thought, I'm going I'm to clear up all of this friction, all this tension in our city. We want peace in our city. We want to execute law in order. Christian Jews, you're out. They didn't put up a fight. They left. And this is part of God's providence. So Priscilla and Aquila leave, and they go to Corinth. Corinth, by the way, is a Roman-occupied kind of a, it has a Greek history. It's filled with a ton of Greeks, but it's occupied, occupied by the Roman Empire. But they were allowing Jewish Christians to reside in Corinth. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Oh, the wind blew my page. Sorry. Verse 2, and he found a Jew there named Aquila, the native of Pontius, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, they're tent makers. They, they build tents. That's how they fund their lives. That's a trade that they had. And they were busy making tents in Corinth. And this was a way that they funded their ministry. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He was trying to persuade the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was trying to persuade Greeks who lived in Corinth that Jesus was the Messiah. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. I love that. A pastor occupied with the word. Novel, right? What a crazy idea that a pastor of a church would be occupied with ministering the good news of Jesus Christ, not, not occupied with every other little thing that they could be occupied with. The world has a lot of things to occupy us with, right? Spiritual leaders are supposed to be occupied with the word of God. This is what Paul is doing testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Verse 6. And, then, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook his garments out and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. There's, a, there's, a, there's some wisdom here in that as people who care about sharing the gospel, the good news with other people, if people are resistant, don't keep ramming it down their throat. Right? Paul says, okay, if you're going to be resistant to the gospel, that's on you. Until God is softening your heart and opening doors in your heart and your mind to have reasonable conversations about Jesus as the Messiah, I'm going I'm to go elsewhere. 
God's closing these doors. I'm going to go to doors that are open. So he goes to the Gentiles. Verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. This is a, a Greek, a Gentile, who had become a worshiper of God. He believed that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, was the one true God. But he hadn't fully, be, he, he hadn't adopted all of the Jewish customs. Right? There's people in our communities who are becoming increasingly convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but yet they don't quite get our customs. They don't get church culture. They're nervous about stepping their foot into our building. They, they don't understand religiosity. That's this man. And so Paul goes to his house. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So there was a ruler in the synagogue. Remember, the synagogue pushed Paul out, but one of the rulers there believed in the Lord, and together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. That's a good response of belief. If you haven't been baptized, immersed in water to show your allegiance to King Jesus, I would encourage you to be baptized. Talk with me. We would love to do that. That's what happens here in Corinth, the first century. Paul is proclaiming the word of God. He's teaching them who Jesus is. People are converting to Christianity. They're placing their faith in Jesus. They're being baptized. Pick it up in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul was attacked and hurt in many cities. So this must have been a comfort to him to hear from the Lord. Hey, there's people who don't like you here. They don't like your message, but they're not going to lay a hand on you here and harm you physically. For I have people in the city who are mine. Church, how true that is. God has people in your spheres of influence, in your places of work, in your neighborhoods, in your cities, who are his He's calling them to himself. He's drawing them to himself. And he has put you in their life so that you could help be a pointer to the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus. Verse 16, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul was in Corinth for a year and six months. He was in Ephesus for three years after this. And he was in Corinth for a year and six months. These are the two places that he stayed the longest at. Usually he would be in a place for a very short period of time, proclaim the gospel, get some leaders in place, and then he would move on to a new city. He was in Corinth for a year and a half, proclaiming the word, building the church, pastoring this church, getting this church started before he would move on to the next place. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So remember, God said, you, you won't be physically harmed, but he was attacked. They just didn't harm him physically. They pulled him in front of the Jewish leaders, the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. People are becoming Christians, but they're not conforming to our way of following God. People are becoming Christians, but, but they're questioning everything that we're telling them and everything that we've been doing and all of our religious duty. They're, they're questioning that, and they're not conforming to what we think it looks like to be religious. And so they're mad at Paul because people aren't conforming into the religious system, the religious custom. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Verse 14, But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. He's saying, hey, 
there's nothing that's breaking like the Roman law here. This is, there's some good separation of church and state we see here in this passage where he's saying, this doesn't have to do with Roman law and social order. This has to do with your religious squabbles. Therefore, deal with it yourself. I'm not going to deal with it as the governor of this city. You guys figure this out. Your Jews squabbling with Jews, your Jewish Christians squabbling with non-Jewish Christians, you're going to have to figure this mess out. Verse 16, and he drove them from the tribunal, and they seized Sosthenes. Remember, he's part of the author, part of the instructor to the church in Corinth. After this church is planted, Sosthenes, he's a ruler of the synagogue. Look at verse 17. They seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. So there's multiple rulers of the synagogue. There's Sosthenes, there's Crispus. They're both placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Sosthenes is seized, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. All right, so that's the origin of this church. Paul is there for a year and a half proclaiming the gospel, building the church. Jews are becoming Christians. Gentiles are becoming Christians. They're in this city that's filled with a ton of temptation and a ton of idolatry, but people are giving their life to Jesus Christ. They're placing their faith in Jesus, believing that he is the Messiah. Paul's there for a year and a half. He plants his church. He moves on, and so then flip back to 1 Corinthians and he tells us that he's the author of the letter, so he was the founding pastor of this church who then moved on to plant other churches, but word has come to him that this church is in trouble, that this church that he planted, that he loves, is a mess. And that's where First and Second Corinthians come. There's actually a letter to them that precedes First Corinthians, which we don't have. Some people think it's like buried in the middle of Second Corinthians, we don't really know. What we do know is that Paul wrote, wrote to this church on multiple occasions trying to instruct them in love and how to do life together. This church that was squabbling, this church that was fighting, this church that was, that was um, getting in bed, for the lack of a better term, with the world and with their city and with the temptations and with the idols. And he cares for them and he loves them and he writes to them to encourage them. Paul and Sosthenes, remember the ruler of the synagogue who was beaten. Together they're addressing this church. They're, they're kind of playing their spiritual authority card. Saying, hey, you came to follow Jesus. You, you listened to us as your pastors and your leaders, and now we've got some things to say to you. We've got some hard things to say to you. As we go out throughout this book, there's going to be some hard correction and some hard confrontation of the way that they're living their life. But it's interesting to notice how Paul starts, and we're going to do that in just a minute. But before we talk about the address, I just want to remind us of the audience. We know the audience. We just talked about it. It's the local church in Corinth. We see that right in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, notice whose church is it? God's, right? To the church of God that is in Corinth. I love how Paul addresses the church. He doesn't say, oh, to this pastor's church, to this pastor's church, to this theologically aligned church, to the church of God. God is the head of the church. Not the people with power, not the people with influence, not the, whether it's up in front on a stage or whether it's kind of behind some churches, there's like power players who are hidden in the scenes and they just, they have the money or they have the power, or they have the control and they, they kind of like to determine where the church goes. Paul says that this church, the church in Corinth, any church, any true church is the church 
of God. This church happens to gather in Corinth. It's a local church in a local city, the church of God in Corinth. But it's not just the church of God in Corinth. So Paul is writing to this congregation, to this family of God, instructing them on some of their sins, some of their idols, some of their issues. But I love that he says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together, I'm in verse 2, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He's writing also to the universal church, the global church, anyone who would read this letter and hear you in IR 2,000 years later receiving this instruction. Amen? Isn't that incredible? He's saying, I'm, I'm addressing this to a specific local church, but there's things that apply to the church of God in any town, in any city, in any generation, on any continent, in any language, any skin color, any cultural background. There's things that you're going to experience that the church in Corinth was experiencing, and these letters are written for your instruction to help you grow up into Christ. You are the mess, church. They are the mess. We are all Corinthians. And Pastor Paul writes to us to instruct us. We are the audience. And so I want us, as we go through this book, to keep in mind that we're the active audience receiving Paul's address, receiving his instructions. With that in mind, I want to look at how he begins this book and how he addresses us. I want to summarize Paul's address by, by the, the, the statement that he's fighting us, or he's encouraging us to fight our idolatry with identity. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see idolatry. And not just idolatry in the sense of like worshiping a false created God made with human hands. There's some of that in the book, but also idolatry of like finding fulfillment through sex. Also idolatry of finding fulfillment through food and drink. Also idolatry of finding fulfillment through money or through prestige or through power or through being on the right side of history. Whatever it is, there's so much in you and I. There's so much in the church in Corinth that is that is leading us away from our identity in Christ because there's idols in our heart. I forget what church father it was, but they said the heart is an idol factory. All of the things that lead us away from true, genuine worship of God, the things that cause us to be hungry for more of God and to seek him for answers and for, for fulfillment and satisfaction, all the things that lead us away from that, it's caused by an idol. There's multiple idols throughout this book that, that we're going to address, and the way that we fight idolatry is with identity. And Paul shows us our identity in Christ. He says that we are sanctified saints called by God. Look at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The word sanctified means to be made holy. He's saying to those who are declared holy by God, Think about your own thought life. Are you holy? Is it pure? Think about your own, your own words, the way that you talk to other people. Is it always holy? Is it always pure? Is it always right? No. In our, in our flesh, we're sinners. But in Christ, we've been made holy. Isn't this amazing, church? He's saying you fight your idolatry by being reminded of your identity in Jesus, that God has set you apart, that God has made you holy, that God says you're sanctified, you're clean, you're holy, you're right, you're pure before God. Amen? And, and you're saints. What if we viewed each other in that same way? Church, we fight idolatry by reminding one another of our identity in Christ. 
We're sanctified. We're holy. We're saints. Our primary identity is not that of sinner. Yes, I struggle with sin. I have a daily battle with sin, but my identity is not that of a sinner. It's that of a saint, according to the Bible. Amazing. And so fight your idolatry with your identity. Paul addresses this church and us as those sanctified in Jesus Christ, those being made right in Jesus. There's this active piece of sanctification where there's the sin that is being repented of and worked out. We're growing more and more like Jesus. Sometimes I think about sanctification as like when I first became a Christian, I was here and Jesus was there and my, like I was so unaware of my own sin and over time God is making me more aware of it and I'm repenting more and more and I'm becoming more and more like Jesus as I learn what it means to follow him. So there's this active piece of sanctification, but there's also this one and done declarative piece of sanctification. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're declared holy. You are sanctified. You become a saint who's called by God. And I love in verse 2, he says, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our first piece of identity that Paul is encouraging us with. You walk through the mess of your Christian life by fighting your idolatry with identity, being reminded that you're a saint. Secondly, Paul calls us recipients of grace and peace from God. Look at verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is undeserved favor. We in Jesus are the recipients of undeserved favor. Peace comes from the Greek word irene. It means wholeness, completeness. You are whole. You are complete. You don't have to look to try and become whole, to become something more, to prove yourself to others, to prove yourself to God, to to, to fix all the broken areas in your own life because Jesus has made you whole. You are complete. Before God the Father, you have a heavenly Father who sees you as whole, who has given you undeserved favor, and you have a Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means master. You have somebody who controls your life, who tells you what to do, who tells you where to go, who tells you how to live, who tells you how to think. You don't have to worry about what a pastor says or thinks or does, or what a politician says or thinks or does, or whatever. You don't have to listen to the news talk on the radio. You don't have to watch the news. You don't have to read every blog. You don't have to listen to every podcast to figure out how to live your life. You have a master who's calling the shots in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he says about you? He says that you have received grace upon grace and you have God's peace, God's wholeness. Amen? Who's telling you that? Not your politicians, not your podcast. Well, some podcasters are. Some of them are filled with the Holy Spirit, right? But church, this is the news that we need. Paul addresses the mess that is the church by saying, you have grace, you have peace. Stop beating yourself up. Stop letting other people beat you up and be reminded of your identity and fight your idolatry with who you really are. Amen? Amen. Let's go. Let's keep moving here. The next piece of this address is that he offers relational gratitude in spite of their mess. Look at verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Oh, church family, if Christians could just be more grateful for one another, right? If you could just be more grateful for people who think differently than you, who act differently than you, who come to different conclusions than you. This church is a mess. Paul has some hard correction for them coming in the chapters ahead. 
But you know what he does? He starts by addressing them as brothers and sisters in Christ. He starts by addressing them in their identity. You are sanctified. You are pure. You are holy. You have received God's grace. You have received God's peace. And he extends to them relational gratitude. I thank God for you. He doesn't curse them because of their sin. He's praying for them. He's caring for them. He's loving them. He's not judging them because they came to a different conclusion about masks or vaccines, right? Amazing. What a great place the church is. When the world's fighting, when the world's throwing stones, when the world is bickering, when the world's trying to slander everyone, you know what the church is? It's a place where you come to receive relational gratitude in spite of the mess that is your life. Amen? Give me an amen. Come on. Let's feel it this morning. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Remember this local church. There's incest in this local church. There's abuse of the poor in this church. There's people getting drunk at the communion supper rather than making sure those who are hungry get food and drink. What? Yes, that's what we're going to find out as we go through this book. And Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Amazing, amazing church. Let's, let's try and adopt this attitude of relational gratitude and grace towards one another in spite of the mess. It's not, it's not acceptance of sin. We're going to see throughout the book that Paul isn't being accepting of their sin. He's confronting their sin, but he's showing love in the midst of confrontation. There's a Harvard Business Review study that they did a few years back that shows that for every criticism, that, that the healthiest organizations, that for every criticism, one criticism given, there's six compliments in healthy organizations. And, and I think that's taking his cue from Scripture, right? If, if God tells us the best way to live our life, is through his word and through what we see modeled in his word and what we see modeled in the life of Jesus. And if sociological studies prove that the best work environment is a place where there's encouragement more than criticism. Now, sometimes there's constructive feedback, right? This this business review is saying that for every every one constructive criticism, there ought to be six encouragements. That creates the best environment. I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's modeling for us. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Jesus Christ. I see who you really are. I see your true identity. I see that you are saints. I see that you are brothers and sisters. I see that you are sons and daughters of God. And I thank God for you in the midst of my frustration with you because you are living in sin and you're not making a good name for Jesus. That's how it's done, church family. Let's keep going. He also addresses those and encourages us to persevere while waiting to be presented guiltless. Look at 5 through 8. He says, That in every way you were enriched in him, that's Jesus, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. He's going to talk about spiritual gifts later on in the book and how our gifts build one another up. We're not supposed to do gift projection where we judge everyone based off of how we're gifted, but we're supposed to use our gift to build up the body. But for some reason, the church tends to judge one another based off of how they're wired or, or, or envy how other people are wired. And so he's going to get into that later on in the book. He's saying, not lacking any gift in this family, in this church, are all the spiritual gifts given to help us grow up into Christ and help 
given to help us wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Jesus helps us persevere. He sustains us until Jesus returns or calls us home. And then he says, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, think about that identity, church family. Paul is saying that as we persevere, as we wait on the coming of the Lord, as we do life together, as we share spiritual gifts with one another, he will sustain us. And you will be presented guiltless before God. Can you imagine? Think about all the guilt and shame that you feel for things that you've done, things that have been done to you. And here, the good news of the gospel, as Paul is addressing this messy church, people who are living in sin. He's saying that as you remember your identity, as you fight your idolatry with your identity, be reminded that you will be presented guiltless as you persevere in the faith. Receive that word this morning, church family. Some of you need to hear that. That's for you. Your identity before God the Father, your future before God the Father is that of one who's done no wrong. What? This is good news. And you know what you had to do to receive it? Nothing. Place your faith in Jesus. He's done it all for you. That's the good news of the gospel. And then one last piece of Paul's address here in the beginning is that he he reminds us of God's faithfulness towards the fellowship of the saints. Look at verse 9. God is faithful. That's what you need to know. Times are always changing. Your faith is always wavering. Pastors, politicians, parents, spiritual leaders. They'll fail you. You know who won't? God. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship. This Greek word is koinonia. It's the family. It's the, the fellowship meal around the table. It's doing life together. It's not a quick coffee connect in a church basement in between services. That's fine. We can have little moments to connect. Actually, not right now, right? Because we pulled that because of COVID concerns for a little while. But, but what he's getting at here is this true fellowship, this deep fellowship in each other's homes, in each other's lives, doing life together. He reminds the church, this messy church, of God's faithfulness towards the fellowship of the saints, towards those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and now do life together. That's you and I. God is faithful towards us as we continue to persevere. And so with that, I want to close down with this application point. If you are in Christ, you belong to the church, the fellowship of messy saints that God loves. Together, we fight idolatry by reminding one another of our identity in Christ, posturing ourselves in love towards one another, and regular participation in the fellowship of the saints. Church family, as we move ahead this spring, as we look at the, bir- the book of 1 Corinthians, there's going to be a lot of things to confront, a lot of idols to confront. And Paul's going to continually confront them by reminding us us of our identity in Christ, and you and I must do the same. We're all Corinthians. We're all the mess. The church is a mess. It's going to hurt you time and time again because it's filled with messy people. But if you belong to Christ, if you're in Christ, this is your family. 
this is your mess. This is the embodied mess that you are called to embrace. And as we do that together, you and I, hand in hand, life in life, in relationship, day in and day out, we fight our idolatry. All of us have different idols. They're all going to be exposed in this book. And together we fight those idols by reminding one another that in Jesus we are sanctified, in Jesus we are saints, in Jesus we have received grace, in Jesus we have received peace, in Jesus we will be presented guiltless on the last day. We remind one another uh, to love each other. We posture ourselves in love towards one another. Remember Paul in gratitude saying, I give thanks to my God always for you, even when you frustrate the heck out of me. I'm giving thanks, I'm giving thanks, I'm giving thanks. Posture yourself in love towards one another. And through regular participation in the fellowship of the saints, whether that's coming together on a Sunday morning, whether that's tuning in online, whether that's being part of a small group, whether that's meeting at a coffee shop, whether that's whatever your rhythms are to regular, regularly participate with the fellowship of God's people. That's how you persevere. That's how we move on. And so this morning, church family, I want to invite you to participate in the fellowship of the saints by taking communion. If you are in Christ. We do this weekly to remind ourselves of our identity in Jesus and to come around the table together. This is a weekly reminder of God's grace and peace to us through his body and his blood. So I want to invite you to peel back the first layer there and pull out the wafer. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we take it this morning. Paul writes later in the letter, He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Take that waiver and break it. And he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to the table. You have called us to gather around you, a man who lived a perfect life, who died a sinner's death and overcame sin and death in the grave. Lord, I thank you for this letter that reminds us to fix our eyes on you in the middle of the mess, to love one another in the middle of the mess, and to gather around you the only perfect source of truth and wisdom and salvation. May you nourish us spiritually this spring as we look at these words for your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.